Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 11 and we'll stop at verse 18. So uh, there might be a, a typo in your bulletin. We'll stop at verse 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you, to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, would you be our teacher this morning? That unless the Lord speaks for your servant, then we speak in vain. Unless your spirit softens our heart and quickens our ears and we listen in vain. And so what we need more now, more than anything, is for you to show up and to minister and come alongside of your people that we might make much of Christ and all that he has accomplished for us. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. On December 18th, uh, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr made this statement about America. He said that the most segregated hour in America is at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And that was in 1963, 54 years ago, almost next month. And sadly, what he said then is still very much true today. There's a book entitled United by Faith, and I commend it to you, um, but in the book, they survey 300,000 churches, or they're able to get data from 300,000 churches in the United States. And they make a case that a true definition of a multi-ethnic church is when no ethnic group um, composes more than 80% of the total uh, population of the church. And based on their research, that out of the 300,000 churches in America, only 5.5% will be considered multi-ethnic. And so what Martin Luther King Jr. said 54 years ago is still very much true, that there's probably more diversity at a Memphis Grizzlies game. There's more diversity at the mall when you go and shop. But for some reason on Sunday mornings, we still find it um, that we will be in worship with our own people, with our own kind. And what I want to do this morning is just kind of 
work through, is that biblical? Is that right? Um, I want to sort of unpack God's heart uh, through what he's accomplished through Jesus. And I want us to, to, to dream. I want us to think about the church and, and what it really is as God has intended it. Now, I know some of you are new to Redeemer and you're kind of just coming in and you weren't here when the church was founded. But I will say that this verse and probably several others in the, in, the, in the Bible were probably verses that compelled our members to stay and to intentionally plant a church that would seek by God's grace to reflect the demographics of our city. And that was intentional. And I want to sort of just, man, is that right? Was that a, a, a good thing? And I want us to sort of work through some of the scriptures. And I want to give you three points. The first thing is this biblical call for multi-ethnicity. And I want to make the case to you that I think it's a calling. The second thing I want to work through is some of the challenges you face in multi-ethnic bodies of worship, multi-ethnic communities. And finally, I want to ask, what is the cross of Christ? How does it speak into that? What has God done for us on the cross of his own son that makes this calling, that makes us, makes this work possible? Because that's what we have to stay tethered to, right? It's, it's not going to be easy. And so the first thing I want to do is just look at this biblical call for local expressions of God's diverse church. Now, what I want to do is sort of go to the end of time. It's one of the beautiful things about the Bible is we actually know how the story ends. And it was in our call to worship this morning that Bentley read that when John sees how the kingdom of God finishes, when he sees when time as we know it is over, you know what he sees. He says, I see people from every nation and from every tribe and every tongue and every language. They're gathered around the throne saying, worthy are you, the Lamb of God. And, and, and we're all clothed in white. And so that's the image at the end of time. John sees a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural, multilingual group of worshipers who will spend eternity with one another worshiping the Lamb. That's how the story ends. But that's not the only place you see this type of, of multi-ethnic vision. I will make the case to you that it's also in the other text that Bentley read this morning. When God made his covenant to Abraham, that he came to Abraham or Abram, and he says, through you, the nations, and it's, it's a plural word right there. Through you, Abraham, the nations of the earth will be blessed. So right there, even in the Old Testament, God was not just about Israel's salvation, that he was doing something through that people group and they were supposed to be a blessing to the world. You see it when Jesus was born, when Simeon in Luke chapter two, Lord, now you're letting your servant see, uh, now you're letting your servant depart in peace because mine eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared for your people in the presence of all people, a light of revelation for the Gentiles. And for, and for the glory of your people, Israel. And so when he's holding and looking and beholding the baby Jesus, what he sees in Jesus is that Jesus Christ is the light for the Gentiles and he's the glory of Israel. That you see it in the present day reality. That if you look in your bulletins, I put some maps in the back of them that I, I got from the Pew Research Center 
But I, I just want to, I want you to show what's happening now. So we've gone forward. We know how time will end. We've gone back to Genesis with Abraham. We've gone to the beginning of Jesus' day and age. And I want you to look at right now, right now, what is going on in the world? If you'll notice world religions, and, and you can start on the, the, the world Muslim population. If you look at it, it it's right there. And it, it, it's the focus group or the area where there's the highest concentration of Muslims, it's, it's Northern Africa and the Middle East. Well, go down and you look at the worldwide Hindu population. It's, it's right there in India. Go over to the worldwide Buddhist population. The density is right there in Southern China and Thailand and, and go down to the Judaistic uh, religions. It's centralized right there in Jerusalem and it's spreading some to the United States. And then look at the last map. Look at Christianity. Look at, and, and it's obvious right there that, that it, it's not bound by geography. That whereas other religions are bound by a certain ethnic group inside of a certain geographical concentration, here's what, the, here's what we're seeing right now. 2.4 billion Christians, and guess what? It is not an ethnic religion. It transcends geography. It transcends race. It transcends culture. It transcends class. It transcends all things because Jesus Christ said what? I, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Christianity is not a white man's religion. It is not a black man's religion. It is not an African religion. It is the religion of the one true God where he promises that I will give to my son the nations. I will give the nations as an inheritance to my son. That this is happening right here and right now. It's what John said would happen. It's what God said it would happen through Abraham. It's what Simeon held up when he held the baby Jesus. This is happening. And so to talk about God's compassion or desire for a multi-ethnic church, to even use those two words together, multi-ethnic and church, you kind of don't need it because the church is multi-ethnic, Right? It is cross-cultural. It does transcend geography. It is all of that. And that's true. Now, here's the thing we see in the text, that this is, Paul was not just nodding his head to that theology. Yeah, that, that's what's going to happen. That when you study the way he planted churches in the book of Acts, that was not just something he nodded his head to and said, yeah, that's going to be true then and there. That when you look at Acts 14, Acts 18, Acts 19, the, the way Paul started churches as he was sent out from Jerusalem, he went into a Jewish synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews and then he went and found the Gentiles. And you can go to Iconium. It says a great number of Jews and Gentiles believe. You get to Ephesus, a great number of Jews and Gentiles believe. And here's the thing that Paul did not do. Paul did not start two separate churches. He did not start a Gentile church for Gentiles and a Jewish church for Jews. He started one church. And he expected that everyone in that church would be of different ethnicities. As a matter of fact, the, the word that we get, uh oh, I just made a miss. <laughs> All right, so let me just get the iPad out the way. And uh, <laughs> anybody got a napkin or something? I can. All right, appreciate it, Dad. <laughs> That's what dads do. They go, they they help out. You know, they see I'm struggling up here. You know. But no, you see it in Paul's explicit language. He says, you Gentiles, call the uncircumcision by the circumcision. You know, right there, and that word we get Gentiles from, the Greek word is ethnos. 
It's where we get our word ethnicity. And so Paul is already letting the cat out of the bag that when he's writing to this church. And if you think like I think Brian Taylor thinks that, that this is a circular letter that did not just go to Ephesus, but it went to Ephesus and was circulated through the entire region of Asia Minor, then that's a really big statement. If this letter was going to go to all the churches in Asia Minor, then think about what Paul is saying. He assumes, he assumes that in every single church that reads this letter, you have Gentiles and you have Jews. You have those who are uncircumcised and those circumcised. Appreciate it. Uh-oh. It's bad. All right, let's try to find my spot. <laughs> this was Paul's practice. His practice. Who lives in the city? Who's here? They need Jesus. Jew and Greek. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you're in a predominantly African-American church or if you come out of a, an all-white church, I'm not saying that that's sinful. And I think you've got to hear me say that because I think some cats who are behind the multi-ethnic vision, they will go, I think, way out far and they will actually speak condemnation upon churches that aren't. And I'm, I'm not there, right? I think, man, if you have density, population density, and you have population diversity, and you're starting a church, hey, let, let's let the church look like the community that you're in. But you got to sort of realize that there are some caveats, right? That when you have first-generation immigrants who are coming to a new part, new country who can't speak English, right, that they're going to need a support group. That, that if you think about when African-Americans could not worship in white churches, that, that, that what's the option? I mean, what's the option? If we can't worship in here with you, then do we not worship the one true God? Of course not. You go and start the AME church and you find a way to worship the one true God. And so you, you look at the, the, the existence of homogenous churches right now, some of that is just bad history. Some of that is just injustice and oppression. And some of the, the, the divisiveness we see right here right now was caused by stuff that happened way back then. And so we can't throw a rock at them right now because of something that happened way back then when they just wanted to worship the Lord. Right? So I think there, there, there's room. I also believe that even in our homo homogeneity, that we are still contributing to the diversity of the kingdom. And so here's the thing, that we, I, and I think we got to hear that, that an all-black church or an all-white church or an all-Asian church or an all-Korean church, that they may not be diverse, but here's the thing, God has made a promise to Jesus that I will ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. There will be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every walk of, walk of life, and we will be together in heaven. Now, even us in our sin, we cannot stop God from making, that, making good on that promise to his son. Right? However, when we're in settings that are diverse, in cities that are diverse, we're in cities that there's population density, where you got people living together, right? That, that if this is God's heart, that we would live reconciled lives, that the gospel would cut across ethnic lines and political lines, that if this is something that God is passionate about, which we see in our text, 
then how can we not be passionate about that? It matters. And I just want to say that I think this idea of multi-ethnicity and, and this global, big, cross-cultural, cross-class church, God cares about this. This is, a, this is something he's promised to his son. I will do this. I will reconcile the world to you. So I think there's a calling from Scripture. Now, just because there's a calling from Scripture for this, it's not easy. And I think you kind of got to let, let it sit there for a minute that it's challenging. And, and, and I think it's challenging because of competing culture, right? That culture is the characteristics and knowledge of a particular group of people that encompasses their language, their religion, their cuisine, their social habits, their affinities for music and the arts, these shared patterns of behavior, and it's usually developed and learned through socialization. And so he, he, I'm, I'm gonna break it down. Here's what sociologists would say culture is. It's, it's these value systems that, are, 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 that, that come together and it's formed. It's these preferences, these things we like and don't like. It's, it's the way we're viewing the world, but it's happening in the context of the community that we're living in. And that, that's culture, right? Now, here's the thing, right? That it has to do with clothing. It has to do with language and values, politics and food. I'll give you a few examples, right? So a few weeks ago, I got here a little early, and I got here when one of our uh, deacons was unlocking the church, and, um, and he, he dropped some bulletins, and he picked some bulletins up, and I noticed his shoes, right? And so he, 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 he bent down, and I could see the top of his shoe, and he had on cowboy boots, right? And I just never seen a person wear cowboy boots with suits, with a suit. And so I, I asked him, I said, dude, those are cowboy boots? And he kind of pulled him up. I said, man, that, that's kind of fresh. I said, what is that, right? And it was like, it was some kind, of, some kind of animal. I forgot what he told me. And I was like, dude, how much those cost, right? And he told me. Like, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, like, dude, that's like three pair of Jordans right there for, for, like, for some cowboy boots, right? But that's culture, right? Maybe if I grew up in Texas or maybe if I grew up on a ranch, that would be important to me. But I, I would never buy a cowboy boot, right? And it doesn't mean that something's wrong with his boot or something wrong, it's wrong with my preference. It's a cultural preference. It's what I've been shaped by in the culture around me. Same thing happens with, uh, in terms of values and vocabulary, right? I grew up and, and I knew three women who did not work outside of the home. And one was a lady across the street from me. Her husband was a fireman. And then it was the two other ladies in the neighborhood. And they, we called, we, they were the candy ladies, right? We had the candy lady, right? And, and that was kind of our day. They didn't sell essential oils. They, they, didn't, sell, they didn't sell jewelry. Like on, on my, my neighborhood, if a, if a woman wanted to have a side hustle and stay at home, you turned your house into Sam's. And, and you, just, you just went there and you would play basketball in the street and you would knock on her door and you would give her 50 cents and you would get a Chico stick. You give her 75 cents, you get like a pickle and, and some Kool-Aid. And if it was hot outside, you get an iceberg. And iceberg is like the Kool-Aid that's really sweet that they pour in the styrofoam cup and put it in the freezer. And if you wanted to cool down during the summer, you just, hey, can I get an iceberg? You get 75 cents, she give you an iceberg, right? It's culture. The candy lady, like that vocabulary, that, that, that ideology 
It's culture. I think we're, we're shaped, like, like just last week when someone brought us dinner and it was something that I personally would not have cooked. It was, it was quinoa <laughs> with some pomegranates in it and some onions and some sweet potatoes. And it was all kind of in the, in the thing. I'm like, man, this is really, really good. And then two days ago, I'm having another conversation with somebody else in the church. And they're like, Pastor, hey, where can I get some oxtails and some mustard greens, right? <laughs> and so I'm telling you, you, got, you know, you got to go to Bullies. You can go to Piggly Wiggly, not Whole Foods. You can go right around here. <laughs> it's culture. You see, though, right? Food and language and vocabulary and dress. And I think politics kind of work the same way that we're shaped within a certain framework. And I wish that there was a, a good middle ground that, that better reflected the ethics of the kingdom. But unfortunately, we're, we're cultured and we tend to vote like the people who share the home that we were raised in. That's just culture. And it's not right or wrong. Like it, the Bible does not say vote this way or vote this way. The Bible doesn't say wear this or wear this. It doesn't say eat this or eat this. It's, it's preference. And here's what happens. That what happens is when we're isolated, right, in our own little silos, normativity sets in. And normativity says this, that, it, it, that, that the way I see the world has to be the way that everyone else sees the world. That the way that I see the world, what I choose to wear and what I choose to eat, this has to be the highest good. And then you have that moment, right, where your culture is challenged. I'll give you an example. Suppose you are a, a white family and your son goes to school or has black friends and you invite him, your, your son's black friends, to come over. And all of a sudden, he, 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 his mom or dad brings him there and he has, he has a pair of shoes on, but then he has another box. Like, he has some, he's like, wait, 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 why you need two pair of shoes? Well, these are Jordans I'm going to wear when we go to the mall. And this is what I'm going to shoot basketball in, right? You're like, whoa, 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 you mean to tell me you don't play basketball in the basketball shoes that you spend a lot of money for? It's a culture thing, right? And so then, you know, you're shooting ball, and he's like, bro, what a candy lady at? Like, what, what, what's a candy lady, right? And then when his mom comes back, she picks you up, and there's an Obama sticker, like, on her car, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it works the other way. It works the other way, right? That suppose you're a black family, and a, a, a white friend comes over, and... She has on Birkenstocks, and your dog's like, what, what, is, what is that, <laughs> right? And your daughter has a lot of dolls, and, and this girl, white girl, goes and plays with the one white doll that your daughter has, right? You tell her to turn on the news, she turns to Fox, and not WLBT, and then when your daughter takes her to the candy lady, she pulls out her debit card, right? <laughs> the candy lady don't take debit cards. It's, it's, it is no tax. It's all cash. <laughs> now, what happens, though, in that moment? And then when she drives away, she has a George W. Bush tag on, sticker on her car. Now, what happens in that moment when these cultures have just clashed? You got a decision to make. Right then and right there, the clashing of culture has just happened. And you have to figure out Am I going to engage or retreat back into what's comfortable for me? 
And here's what happens 94.5% of the time. How do you get churches where there's only 5.5% of diversity? You know how you get that? Because 94.5% of the time when these moments happen, if they happen, people don't want to engage. They don't want to engage with someone who worships differently, right? Someone who stands, someone who does this, that all of these things that are culturally informed, when they're checked, we want to retreat back into our own corner And it's dangerous, right? And when you lay all of this, right, you lay all of this culture stuff on top of, right, on top of the history of race in America and the treatment of Native Americans and the treatment of men and women who look like me, have my skin color, you lay all of that stuff on top of the cultural stuff Now you're getting why it's hard. It's hard for a black person to want to be in a space like this. When you hear about Trayvon Martin and you hear about Sandra Bland, you hear about the media is spinning the opioid epidemic. That is not how they talked about crack cocaine. You know that, right? It's not what they did with crack cocaine. It makes it hard, it makes it hard to trust. It makes it hard to want to engage. And on the other side, you got well-intending white people, right? Who are, I'm sorry, like I wasn't alive back then. I, I didn't shoot him. If I could repent a million times, I would repent. And then they're demonized by the black people over here. You just don't get it. You just don't understand. But they're like, no, I'm making concessions. I want to be here with you. And you're demonizing me. And then this group over here, they want to retreat. Well, you know, if you're, all you're going to do is demonize me, I'm out. And this group over here, well, if, if you can't ever talk about this, then I'm out. Right? Amen. That's why it's hard. It's hard to press into this. And you know what? It was just as hard in Paul's day. Jews and Gentiles, they did not dress alike. There were fabrics that Jews could not wear. They did not talk alike. They did not have the same language. They did not eat the same food. And on top of all of that, there was a history, a history of violence against one another. Who do you think David was fighting when he was taking land, Gentile land? Who do you think enslaved Israel in Egypt? Gentiles did. Who did God go in and dispossess and and take their land and say, this people gets this land? It was the Jews. They went in. And then who did God turn around and use to kick Israel out of the land? It was the Gentiles, the Persians and the Medes and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And I mean, I mean, you think about the Bible, what the Bible is saying in the Old Testament is there is this great conflict happening on a cosmic level and it's crossing ethnic and national lines. And so when Paul talks about a multi-ethnic church, he's bringing all of this back into it. That's why there's hostility that he writes about in this text. On top of that, there's this hostility. You were uncircumcised and were circumcised. You were alienated from the promises of God. He made no covenants with you. You were not near to him. I mean, think about that. You're defining me as a Gentile because I'm a non-Jew. 
like my, my category for being a Gentile is that I'm not like you. So you, even you are attaching your racial identity to me. And because I'm not you, I'm the other, right? Now you get the hostility. Now you get why it's hard. Now you get that what's going on beneath this and what he's expecting. It's hard. Here's what we won't be able to say in glory. That when when we are worshiping the lamb around the throne, not one of us will ever say this was easy. This is a hard path to follow. And yet, when you look at the context of where this fits into the passage, go, go back and look at Ephesians 2, verse 10, right above where I read. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, tell me, Paul, what's the first good work that you're calling us to walk in? What's the first good work that comes right after you tell me I'm not saved by my works, but I'm saved by grace. But you're saving me to go and and manifest good works. What's the very first good work that comes out of the penmanship of Paul when he writes the letter? It's this right here, this type of church where Jew and Gentile live reconciled lives, pursuing unity. Paul, of all the things he's going to write about what we're to do, the first thing he does, it says, this is it right here. Now, here's the good news about the gospel. You can always say it when you get the gospel and when it's not the gospel, because the gospel always says to me, what God commands, God equips. What God desires, God gives me the ability to do it. If God wants to save my soul and my sin separates me from God, God's going to take away my sin and give me righteousness. The glory goes to God. And it's the same thing with walking out this type of unity. It starts with what God has done first. So it's the cross of Christ that there's a calling to pursue this. It's challenging to pursue it. But the cross of Christ makes it possible. The cross of Christ creates something that's absolutely beautiful and astonishing. And that's what you see in the text, that, that, that Paul, he talks about Jesus in this sweet and beautiful way that you were once far off, but you've been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So you get the image that that for Paul to say, hey, this is what you are and I want you to do. It presumes it, it assumes that Jesus Christ has done something to make it possible. Now. Hostility is here. And I think what Paul is doing is he's calling them both to remember. He doesn't say, hey, just can we just sing Kumbaya and act like that stuff didn't ever happen? And let's just let's go. our separate. He says, no, actually, go remember. Gentiles, remember what it was like before you were saved. You were without hope and without God. But he's also calling the Jews to remember. And you see it. I think I mean, I think he's taking a jab at him. Right. He says, look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh 
you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. That, that statement right there, when Paul puts that in there, he's talking about their circumcision made in the flesh by hands, right? Do you know in Deuteronomy 10, what type of circumcision does God require? It's not in the flesh and it's not done by human hands. He says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, of your heart. And so what Paul is getting at when he is sort of saying this to them, he's taking a jab at them, too. Like you were near God. You had all the promises and the covenants and the land and his blessing. And guess what? It didn't do what it was supposed to do. That rather than make you worshipful, rather than work humility in your heart, it actually worked arrogance. And for the Gentiles, where your being separate was supposed to want you to want help, it actually made you hate and it made you angry. And so that's what Paul is talking about, this dividing wall of hostility. What is the dividing wall of hostility? He says that it's the commandments and the ordinances. In other words, he says he tore, he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Well, what is the dividing wall of hostility? It's the law of commandments and ordinances. And that is what Jesus does away or takes upon himself in the flesh. And so this is not the moral law. This is not the Ten Commandments because later Paul's going to appeal to the Ten Commandments when he talks about children loving, uh, honoring their parents. This is the first commandment with the promise. It's later on in Ephesians. So he's not talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about he's, he's not talking about the moral law. He's talking about the ceremonial law. The food, the drink, the attire. All of that stuff that would have made them different. It, G, Paul says Jesus takes all of that upon himself because those things worked. It caused pride in the Jews. And you see the pride, right? When Jesus came in Mark 11 and cleansed the temple. Remember what they did in the temple? When they had turned the father's house into a den of robbers. When they're selling animals and money changing. You know where they did it? Let me show you. Jimmy, you got that slide for me? All right, so, all right, I'm going to back up. This is the temple in Jesus' day. Right here, you have the court of the priests. So right here, that's where the high priest would go into. The priest would be here. Right here, you have the court of uh, Israel, and that's where the Jewish men could come. And then right here was the court of women, and that's where Jewish women could come. And then you see this big old wall that goes all the way around it. Where were Gentiles? If they wanted to come and worship the one true God, where did you have to go? Next slide. You were right here. You couldn't come in here. You couldn't, you couldn't come past this wall. And so when, Je when Jesus does the money-changing episode, the reason he's so mad is because the one place, the one place that Gentiles could come and worship was in the court of the Gentiles. The Jews had set up this, this temple stuff to take money and turn money over. And that's why Jesus says, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Same word right here. You see the arrogance? Let me just push these little Gentiles out. Let's just get them out. Let's use, let's use where they're supposed to meet with the one triune God. Let, let's make this where we change our money and get rich. And how did Gentiles respond to that with anger? Antiochus, one of the rulers, sacrificed a pig in the temple and made the priests eat the pig. That when you go look at Herod and all those rulers, their antagonism towards the Jews, they hated them. They would put their men, disguise their men and give them knives and just let them go stab people at the Passover. 
You see, the hostility that these ceremonial laws, don't eat, don't do this, it, it showed itself in the temple. And how did the Jews respond? With arrogance. How did the Gentiles respond? With anger. That's the hostility that you see that Paul says Jesus Christ does something about. He comes and does what? He says he takes it. He takes it. That by abolishing, that, that look at it in verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments and the ordinances. You see what Jesus is doing? Paul's view of the cross of Christ was horizontal reconciliation amongst ethnic groups to himself through the cross. All the sins that you committed against them, all the women you beheaded and killed, it's, I'm going to pay for that. And all of the arrogance and all of the, the, the pride that you felt, I'm going to pay for that right here on my cross. There is the reconciliation. It is possible because Jesus says, I'm taking it all upon me. Charge their sin upon me. Charge their arrogance upon me. Charge their anger upon me. And then here's the greatest reconciliation. The cross was not just about reconciling Jew to Gentile, that the other act of reconciliation is from sinner to God. And that's what you also see in the text. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing that hostility. So there's two hostilities there, right? There's hostility between man and man, right? But there's a greater hostility. The greater hostility on the planet is not white crime against black crime. It's not black crime against black crime. It's not black crime against white crime. The greatest hostility under the heavens is our sins before a righteous and holy God. Amen. And see, we, we, we forget that at times. We so easily look out there and we don't understand what our sin is doing right here. And what Paul is saying, Jesus Christ, he comes and destroys, he kills the hostility through his own death. He reconciles you to the Father through his righteous life and righteous living. And he reconciles you to one another. I love the image of the cross. My artist's eyes I look at one state going up and down and it's showing us this reconciliation that happens from heaven and earth and the other state is going right to left and it's showing us the reconciliation that is possible from man to man and nation to nation through the one man, Jesus Christ. And if that were not enough, look at what else Paul says. Look at verse 15. He did this so that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. You catch that? Like, I'm like, are you serious? Are you really, really serious that the work of Jesus is taking these two people and it's doing, it's, it's doing so much more than putting us in a room together where we're together, but we're different. And, and I get that. He's actually saying, I'm making a new breed, a new race, a new type of people. 
and what you share in common is not the blood of your earthly father and not the skin color that you wear. What you have in common is the blood of Jesus Christ over you. And that and we are new. We are we are new individual creations in Jesus. That was last week. But we're also one new corporate community in Jesus. We're new. We are new. Look, we, we have to go there. You got to acknowledge the bad history and the pride and the arrogance. And so when your black people want to talk about how they feel. Remember, Paul's calling them to remember. And it's nothing wrong with going back into our history of our country and owning what was bad about it. We don't just sweep it under the rug like it's no, no, that stuff happened and it's real. But here's the thing. The reconciling work of Christ gets the last word. That's good news. That's really good news. If Jew and Gentile can be reconciled through the cross of Christ, it is an example for all. He says, charge the offenses to me, the racial pride, the racial superiority, the cultural superiority that easily slips in and pervades. He says, charge it to me, the reaction against the bigotry that can that can turn the oppressed into the oppressors. Charge it to me. White supremacy is not compatible with the gospel and neither is black supremacy. What matters now is that we are a new race in Jesus for God's glory. And this is what God has done in Jesus Christ. I love Carl Ellis's book, Free at Last. He says, black is beautiful, but not as beautiful as Jesus. He says, white is beautiful, but it's not as beautiful as Jesus. You get what he's getting at? I think we want to think that, that we are defined and our primary identity is skin color or what we have. He says, no, none of that stuff is as beautiful as Jesus. That's the way forward. Dr. Corey Edwards, she's an African-American sociologist at Ohio State University. She wrote a book and it's called The Elusive Dream. I would commend it to you. But she researches uh, and, and does work with cross-cultural churches and, and multi-ethnic churches. And at the end of one of her uh, times with the church, she took out 15 note cards. And on each note card, she wrote an identity that people uh, feel, right? And so on one note card, she would write mother. And so if you're a mother, then you, that card would be in your pile. And on another note card, she put father. And on another note card, she put black and she put white. And she put American and she put Democrat and she put Republican. She put divorce. She put widow. She put I mean, she ran a gamut of 15 different labels that, that, that we have an affinity for in terms of our identity. And then here's what she did. She says, look, take what applies to you and keep it. If you're not a widow, then put the widow card over here that doesn't apply to you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to put the cards in order starting with the identity that you identify with the most. And I want you to go all the way through all the cards until you get to the one that you identify with, but it's the least out of everyone else, right? 
And here's what she was trying to do. She was trying to figure out what primarily defines people. Some people would put, I'm a Republican. That's the first card in their stack. They, that is the thing, right? Some people would put, I'm a veteran. They take great pride in serving our country. Some people would put, I'm black. That, that's the first thing I want people to know about me. That's the identity marker that I feel closest to. And here's what Paul is saying in our passage. Your blackness and your whiteness, they don't get to be the first card. They don't get to be the first card. You're a new race. You're a new kind. You're a new type in Jesus. Doesn't mean that he's obliterating our blackness or obliterating our whiteness. We, John sees some, he sees diversity in heaven, but what he sees in the center of the diversity is the lamb. And so as we press forward with this vision and hope, what do we do? And I'm free to be black, you're free to be white. But we belong to Jesus first. That's the first card in the stack. And if our first card in the, in the stacks are the same through the work of Jesus, we can have real unity. No matter how we arrange these other cards, that trumps it all. And that's how multi-ethnic churches work. That's how we persevere together through the work of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do pray that your word has been proclaimed in a way that honors your son and his work. I do pray that you would apply it to our hearts and lives. May we be people who are of a third kind, a third race, a third type, a third ethnos, a third group of people known not by our skin color and the value the world assigns to it, but known first and foremost because we're united to you. I pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. God, it won't serve you well. If I asked you that this morning, if I gave you 15 cards and says, hey, all the identities that you share, what's number one? You know what Paul says? Jesus. That's number one. He trumps our blackness. He trumps our whiteness. He trumps our politics. That if we truly understand the fullness of the gospel, then our chief and highest identity is that we're new in him. And when you get different people with different identities in different orders lined up, you know we can have table fellowship when that's the chief identity for all of us. And so Jesus isn't asking us to give up our blackness or our whiteness, right? He's not asking us to give up. He's just saying that those things, they're not as important as the new humanity he has made through the cross. And that's my prayer, is that we would press into this, that we would see the challenges 
and that the cross of Christ would remain supreme. He's taken away the guilt. He's taken away the shame. He's made us new. He calls us to live this out. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and for the promise that you have made us a new man, a new woman in Jesus. I do pray that you would help us to live out of this reality more and more. We love you and we thank you for Christ's sake. Amen.